Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of Resuming Debate for 2023. And it's a good time to talk about a current story, but also uh, what has been uh, one of the bigger stories, I think, looking back at 2023, and that has been the issue of foreign interference in Canada, uh, a pressing national security issue. Uh, I think it was discussed a little bit more in the spring than in the fall, but uh, nonetheless uh, continues to be a, a present and growing concern. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined for this discussion by my friend Charles Burton, uh, who's a great Canadian uh, professor, uh, a, uh, a, a great China expert in particular, uh, and someone who who understands the foreign interference file extremely well. Charles, thanks so much for uh, joining us for this conversation. Great pleasure to talk with you, Garnet. Um, Charles, this is where I thought I thought I would start. So, so probably one of the the better known Canadian political podcast is Curse of Politics by by David Hurley. And so I just listened to their year in review. And so their focus isn't so much on policy, but it's on politics and political analysis. And he basically called the foreign interference story a, a, the, the great non-story of the year. That is, it was talked about a lot, but at least as it relates to politics and political impact, um, it didn't have um, it didn't end up being important or consequential in, in his view. What's what's your take on the political discussion that has happened this year around foreign interference? Um, wh why should Canadians care? And and do you think this is a story that has nonetheless failed to punch through in terms of public public uh, consciousness? I think that it it is a story that uh, Canadians cannot prioritize in terms of their own um, political preferences. You know, in the course of the Conservative leadership campaign when it was found that uh, Jean Charest had been the recipient of a of a retainer from the Huawei company. You know, this was not a major issue in his failed candidacy. It, to me, it seemed huge that we might have a future prime minister that had been on the payroll of of a company that's closely associated with the Chinese um, Chinese Communist Party and military. But for most people, it doesn't seem to have a lot of presence. Now we have a public inquiry by uh, Justice Og ongoing, but that's also not had a lot of um, publicity up to now. And uh, the process does not seem to be going in the way that we would hope to get to the bottom of exactly what we can do about foreign nations that attempt to interfere in our democratic institutions. And of course, in the case of some parliamentarians, attempt to intimidate them via their families in in uh, in China, in the case of Michael Chong. So, you know, it, it should be something that we should be more concerned about. It would be readily resolved if we simply, uh, you know, listen to what our security and intelligence agencies are telling us, find the people who are engaged as agents of a foreign state in our country illegally and uh, expel them and make clear to the government of China and governments of other countries that are engaged in activities which are not consistent with their diplomatic role in our country that we're not going to tolerate it. And if you engage in this activity, there will be consequences for you. So, you know, but we, for reasons that are pretty clear, I think, we're not doing that. 
And I think the reason that we're not doing it is that there are so many um, Canadians involved in positions of public trust who tend to push aside concerns about China because they're hoping in their post-political careers, post-civil servant or post-representative uh, um, careers, to, to be able to join law firms and companies that have connections with China, and if they're identified as while in a position of public trust as being active in trying to um, address the challenge of China's malign activities in Canada, then those opportunities are not available to them. So I think that there is some sort of tacit message issued by the Chinese government that if you don't press them on, you know, genocide, um, expansion in the South China Sea, violation of their commitment to Hong Kong, or increasing um, military threat to Taiwan, that um, you may find yourself rewarded and able to make some big bucks um, once you leave public service. So, you know, I think that that does have a dampening effect on the vigor with which our political class is addressing, you know, what's very apparent is something very, very wrong in terms of the way that China relates to Canada. And really, we have to be grateful for the release of the documents to the Globe and Mail and mm-hmm. news that, you know, has made things that I have been saying in maybe over 200, maybe 230 op-eds since 2006, where I've been, you know, uh, last last week an American referred to me as the Paul Revere of, of China. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, once we saw the, the actual transcripts of the uh, of the bugged conversations between Chinese diplomats and others, um, you know, it became clear that this is real, not something that's simply a, a conspiracy theory without evidence. But uh, we're still not seeing what I would regard as the appropriate vigorous response that mm. one would hope for to preserve Canadian security and sovereignty against a foreign threat, threat you know. Yeah. So let's let's pull apart a few different threads of what you said. I mean, you you said at the beginning, uh, you know, there's some questions around the public prioritizing this because of the the cost of living uh, pressures that are are obviously very real and very um, very imminent for for many Canadians. But on the other hand, you also talked about um, maybe certain elites not having the incentive to to vigorously. Um, pursue pursue these issues and i guess there's sort of a certain chicken and egg in in politics question right of are the are the issues that are top of mind driven by what people are putting on the agenda or are they driven by uh what elites are 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 promoting and talking about and and at least i don't even think we're primarily talking about about elected officials themselves we're talking about no. um the decisions made uh you know, by by various academic stakeholders, people in in media, um, various other other opinion leaders. Um, so, um, so I guess there's these these two different aspects potentially of why why some some would say this this hasn't really been as big a story this year maybe as it as it could have been or or um, or should have been when it when it comes to the like the the public response, I think like one of the challenges of foreign interference is it's it's a pressing national security threat when you have foreign governments that are trying to shape and control the directions of our institutions, but it, yeah. it doesn't manifest itself in the same way as other kinds of national security threats that are very kind of direct and visible, right? When you have um, acts of terrorism, for example, that the, the nature of terrorism is it's is it's designed to strike fear in a population and therefore be very um, 
very present and visible. Um, but but these these uh, these efforts at foreign state-backed interference, they they aim to operate by stealth and subvert our institutions without being visible. Is that, is that one of the challenges here that that we face? Yes, I mean absolutely. The you know the United Front Work Department of the Chinese Communist Party, which is the institution of the Chinese regime that is responsible for influence and interference activities, is a very sophisticated institution. You know they have fifty thousand staff, and they are a major proportion of the um, persons in Canada who. Uh, enjoy the protection of diplomatic status in our country. You know, the Chinese embassies and consulates in Canada have a very high level of, of staffing that seems to exceed that of comparable nations. Um, and one assumes that the, the reason for that is that, that a lot of those people are involved in trying to um, engage in covert um, and coercive and corrupt activities in Canada that go beyond the normal diplomatic engagement that one would expect from from countries that are prepared to play by the the rules of diplomacy and respect the the Vienna Convention. So you know, from that point of view, that the subversion is there, and it the Chinese regime is really not comparable to our own institutions. You know, it's a Leninist regime where the Chinese Communist Party forms an umbrella of control over everything. So the regime is able to engage in, in manipulation based on economic incentives that, that we could not, we could not do. And so, you know, China wants to be able to have uh, full access to our critical mineral sector and wants to be able to, to uh, export um, um, dual use military technologies through whatever means. We, we can't do the, the same thing reciprocally in China. You know, if, if a Canadian telephone company, say BlackBerry, um, wants to find out you know about the latest technological developments of its of its rivals or wants to know information about bids of of its rivals for for opportunities in other countries our communication security establishment uh you know our spy agency is not going to provide that information to blackberry but in china it's normal that you know um of course uh Huawei would be given these kinds of advantages. And we know from the United States that this has been going on in quite a major fashion and that Huawei has been able to obtain um, um, with Chinese regime assistance technologies that they have not developed themselves. And I think in general, if you look at a company like Huawei, why is their equipment, you know, something like a third less than their competitors like Nokia and Ericsson? It's because you know when the when the price is set, the Chinese government is able to to factor in the intelligence gathering benefits of having, say, control of a five G network or or um, you know knowledge yeah. of infrastructure that could be a future use to the regime. So when you're dealing with China, you're dealing with something that is not the same. You know, you cannot adopt a sort of country agnostic approach to China. You really have to be looking at. Um, you know, are they engaged in activities which should be illegal under Canadian law? And are we able to um, to prevent this from from happening? And, you know, I don't think that we have enough awareness of the of the very subversive nature of the Chinese regime's agenda in Canada and the great successes that they have been having in achieving them, which I think is really why they keep so many people here or, you know, or why the 
the Chinese consul general in Vancouver is a person who is very high up in the regime, uh, much higher than you would expect a consul general of a relatively minor um, foreign city. It's because of these other aspects, other benefits, the regime they're able to, to derive while we basically you know, don't seem to see it happening and don't pay attention to the very serious concerns and allegations raised by uh, security intelligence services, which has then led people to betray their their commitment to the Security of Information Act and release top secret documents to the press, which, you know, is yeah. very damaging to our to our nation yeah. and foreign reputation and ability to share intelligence with our allies in future. Yeah. When you put it in those terms, it, it really does underline just how extraordinary some of the events of of the year have been, which is why I would I would push back against the description of it as a as a non-story. I mean, I think it's been hugely important on on lots of levels. And, and to your point about just understanding the different ways that the that the communist system works, the, the way I try to explain this to people is that like the the logic of, of our Western rule of law system is that there's a lot of separation between different institutions. You have parliament and the executive and you have courts and you have independent civil society and you have business and you have religious institutions and they're all, they're all doing different things. And that's different from the logic of the communist system, which is everything must be centrally coordinated to advance the interests of the party. And that has spillover effects here. Enormous spillover effects in terms of, you know, we've seen this, we have done some good things. Um, you know, we denied a Chinese um, construction company from taking over Canada's largest publicly owned construction company, Acon, a company which was involved in projects like the Gordie Howe Bridge, you know, thereby not providing potentially the Chinese regime with blueprints that could be used for strategic purposes on the assumption that a state-owned construction company would be required under Chinese law and forget about law, just practice to to engage in in espionage on behalf of the Chinese military and security agencies, and you know, and we denied um, the purchase of a money losing gold mine by Shandong Gold up in way up in the north. You know, a gold mine that was you know suspiciously close to a NORAD installation and provided some potential outlet into the Arctic Oceans. Well, you know, you just. I mean, look at it. Why would China want to buy a gold mine that that uh, we can't unload anywhere else because uh, you know it's not feasible to mine there? It's because of these other geostrategic benefits in terms of their long-term planning for how they want to relate to Canada, and that includes you know the Arctic Silk Road and China defining itself as a near polar nation and its desire to to you know have have potential military. Uh, facilities uh, all around the world facilitated through the Belt and Road Program, their global infrastructure program that that is ostensibly designed to assist countries with infrastructure. But you notice that all the belts and roads lead to China, and um, and um, you know the the countries that are given the most uh, attention by China have geostrategic advantages in the way of port facilities and other potential military facilities for a future you know, global conflict that China may 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 be involved in to assert its position as stated by Party General Secretary Xi Jinping, 
to assume the community of the common destiny of mankind. In other words, for China to become the, the global hegemon in the context of the United States fading into irrelevance and, you know, those global institutions that maintain uh, justice and peace and prosperity in the world fading away to be replaced by institutions that reflect the values of an autocratic Chinese state and would be welcomed by their somewhat like-minded friends like Iran and, and Russia. So, yeah. you know, we do have we do have a lot to worry about because it's gradual, you, you know, it's step by step. It's like, I don't know if you've ever played the game Go, where you put the little tiles around there and eventually you want to surround, you know, you want to surround your your uh, your your opponent. And it the game takes like 16 hours. And I mean, man, when I was at university in China, I was there for four years living in the dorm and we played a lot of Go and I I started to play a bit of Go and I thought I was getting pretty good at it. But in all my four years, I never won a single game because uh, just as I was thinking I was doing better, uh, you know, the other guys surrounded me and I lost. So. You know, I do feel there's some comparable process. You just have to be looking at all the things that the regime is doing and understanding that they have a long-term perspective and a coordinated perspective. And we just, we just aren't, you know, if they're playing Go or playing checkers, you know, we just right. aren't seeing it. And so let's, let's, that let's, is a big concern for Canada's future. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you said so many interesting things we could, we could follow up on, um, on the issue of the game of Go, right? I, I think this is a, a crucial point. And I, and I, a couple of years ago, when I started really getting into um, under, trying to understand kind of the nature of the challenges we we face uh, in Canada-China relations and with the CCP, um, I read Sun Tzu's, um, you know, The Art of War, and and um, both the game of Go and the the and the the strategies emphasized by Sun Tzu, they they emphasize the superiority of trying to um swallow your enemy whole if you like right like it's um it's it's a military strategy that um that less emphasizes sort of direct confrontation and it's about trying to take over while avoiding uh direct direct confrontation um and so as, as much as sort of the system that um that the ccp uses is is a is a communist system the um some of these these attitudes towards strategy seem to be informed by this more ancient, ancient tradition and something worth, worth learning from. Um, so I'm curious for your thoughts on that, but then also um, do you think that you mentioned partnerships with Russia and, and, and Iran and so forth? Do you, do you think it, that the current global circumstances we face should be described as a new cold war? Is it, is it useful and instructive to use that kind of a description uh, as we think about sort of the strategic dynamics we face? Well, I mean, I think certainly, you know, what China is doing is a, is already a hybrid, we're already in a hybrid war situation. And I think our, our own military um, have got this kind of doctrine down, although, as you say, it doesn't seem to have penetrated into the mainstream. But then we're also looking at you know, we're looking at an Iran-backed Hamas in the Middle East, yeah. uh, war, Russian war against Ukraine and Europe, and, you know, increasingly dangerous military activities by the Chinese regime in the South China Sea um, and Taiwan Straits. You know, it's, we've seen so many close calls, like the 
when the Chinese uh, plane came up to a, a Canadian craft that was monitoring North Korean violations of uh, of the UN sanctions and came within five meters of our of our plane, or or Chinese uh, ships that that cross uh, dangerously close to um, to um, uh, Canadian and other vessels that are engaged in freedom of navigation exercise in the South China Sea. I mean, eventually, if you have a lot of close calls, you're going to have a, an accident. And so many wars in history, of course, have started through relatively minor incidents. Um, and one wonders if uh, if China is, is trying to foment some incident that that will lead to the breakout of uh, of a military conflict. And the question really will be, um, you know, where will Canada come out and where will we stand on that? And and can we uh, can we rely on our allies to to um, challenge um, China's attempts to say annex Taiwan or um, or um, you know assert its authority over pretty much all of the South China Sea, particularly areas which are quite close to other countries like Philippines and Indonesia that that really by rights uh, should not be uh, excluded from those from those waters. So um, you know of course it's a it's a hybrid war, but I am worried about you know a three front war. Right. Um, breaking out and the ability of the West to, uh, to, to fight a war on that basis if, if we're doing three things at one time and, and the um, commitment of our allies to support and for that matter, the commitment of Canada remains uh, sort of uncertain. So we, we face an existing conflict of a sort that we're maybe, that, that, some in our intelligence agencies are, of course, very, very wise to, but but many people are 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 not paying attention to, and then meanwhile there's a risk of uh, of further further escalation. So we, we, it, with all those things going on, um, again, as I said at the beginning, you know, we're we're at the end of this year. A lot of people talking about thinking about what next year to bring could bring. <laughs> it could bring a new prime minister in Canada, and so if if the new prime minister. Um, uh, picks up the phone and, and calls you and says, Charles, uh, after listening to resuming debate, <laughs> Garnet's podcast, I realize we have a problem. Um, what should I do? Um, what, what, what are you going to advise, uh, is done, um, right away. And then what, what are you going to advise be done maybe more gradually over, over uh, time? Well, I think certainly we need to have people who are working in our civil servant, particularly in global affairs, who understand what's going on with China. You know, the structure of global affairs at present is that people move. It, does, it discourages um, uh, expertise. I gave some evidence to the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee on this last week. You know, the numbers of people with Mandarin has declined in foreign affairs. Um, you know, there's a that was a Senate report came up with that. And then a global affairs own report indicates that people who have subject specific expertise are not able to to gain promotion over those who have more managerial backgrounds. So, you know, this is clearly wrong. I mean, we need in a hurry to be able to give our government advice so that they can't be flim flammed by um, you know, Chinese Communist Party, well-funded, well-resourced uh, engagement. And, you know, and that goes for for uh, Justice Ogg's public inquiry. I, I don't see anybody associated with that public inquiry who has the ability to explain to her exactly what the Chinese regime is about. It hasn't been a priority in terms of deciding who should be involved. And, you know, some of the people that 
that are involved are are that have been um, called to be uh, um, uh, part of it are people that we have concerns about in terms of their past relations with uh, with China and you know including one MP who resigned from the has left the Liberal Party because of allegations of improper interaction with the Chinese state and. Uh, um, Michael Chan, a um, uh, uh, former Ontario Minister of Trade, now Deputy Mayor of Markham, who uh, sued me uh, in 2015 for my um, rather, um, you know, non-libelous article entitled The Murky World of Chinese Influence, uh, plus, um, um, you know, others that, that one would think might be not giving the full story about our concerns over over Chinese influence activities, and I mean the whole point of the thing is to is to find that out. So I would certainly, you know, I would certainly um, want us to try and draw on expertise that will give a, a view to the government of the nature of Chinese activities and make recommendations to the government about what we can do about it. Which I think is to call them out on it big time. You know, we okay. we expelled one Chinese spy, a member of the Ministry of State Security, who had diplomatic status, who you know, we know uh, was involved in attempting to harass, you know, seeking information to harass the family of the Conservative Party's foreign affairs critic. How come we only expelled one? You mean there's only one? CSIS only knows about one? You know, why Why can't we we turf them all? And the concerns that I hear from, from global affairs is, well, you know, if we expel those Chinese spies, then they'll they'll start to expel our people in in you know, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Hong Kong, um, Chongqing, and so on. Well, I mean, you know, it's not much of a reason uh, to to allow people who are engaged in activities which are illegal in our country to be given tacit content, consent to continue them by sending out a signal to the Chinese government that we're only going to expel one. So I, I do think that, you know, we have to take a harder line. And my feeling is that the Chinese respect uh, strength and, uh, and resolve and and take advantage of of what they perceive as as weakness, and you know that we're managing this wrong. I you know I did talk to Global Affairs about uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy, which describes China as a disruptive global power, global force. I forget what I thought that was a pretty weak characterization. I would say strategic competitor uh, or strategic threat. And mm -hmm. the answer that I was given was well. You know, disruptive is not necessarily a bad thing. The internet, when it first came out, was disruptive. Well, you know, if that's the attitude, if that's the interpretation of the people who are administering our relations with China, um, uh, you know, God help us in terms of of uh, yeah. coming to terms with it. So we do need to have a change in in thought and a change in priorities in the government. And and I I, I hope that uh, any government that succeeds the current government will. We'll look at the China file and decide we need to do things very differently. But I don't think it's that hard. You know, I, I just it, it's it's simply a question of informing the Chinese that that we just won't put up with this anymore and it's got to stop. And I think the other aspect is we need to give much more support to our Canadians of Chinese origin that the Chinese regime does not respect the norms of citizenship and regards people who have any connection to China, you know, people who um, descendants of the Yellow Emperor, that they should continue to be loyal to um, the Chinese regime as, you know, as as defined by the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that this this has had you know quite a lot of success in terms of very large numbers of associations 
of the Chinese regime run by uh, Chinese embassies and consulates, you know, the police stations, the proxy organizations, the the organizations that facilitate the kickbacks for political donations to candidates that China favors and so on. But, um, you know, most of our Chinese Canadians are, of course, very loyal to our country. And I think we have to send out a much stronger signal of support to them that we do not see them as being proxies for an autocratic foreign regime, but that they are part of the mainstream of Canada and deserve our full support. And if the Chinese regime is engaged in harassment of these people, we have to start arresting those who are doing that kind of harassment. And so far, the total number of Chinese um, agents who have been harassing our, our Canadian Uyghurs, our Canadian Tibetans, our Canadian Chinese democracy activists, our Canadian Falun Gong is zero. You know, I don't think there's been a single one that's been subject to being made accountable in a Canadian court of law. We have to stop this. Can, can I probe a few pieces of this? So so I understand what you're saying about the value of sending a clear message. Um, in the last few years, having worked on this issue and, and asked various, you know, ministers questions about it, sometimes you do get this like, you know, ministers wanted to create a moment and they and they lean into the, the camera and said, and I'm talking to, you know, diplomats, do not interfere in Canada. And it, it just sort of continues. So like, I, I think there there may be instances where for rhetorical reasons, there's a, there's a desire to sort of look strong and send these kinds of strong messages. And, mm -hmm. and it doesn't um, it doesn't actually change change anything which is why i wanted to push a little bit on the sort of concrete concrete policy measures um it, it sounds like you're saying you know we have to use the tools we have uh charging people that are that are involved in this and uh but th but that's not something that you have the who gets charged and doesn't get charged is not a decision of of the government uh, itself, right? That's a law enforcement decision. Expulsion of diplomats is a government decision, so that's that's one thing within within their control. It it may be that we need to better resource uh, law enforcement or provide them with greater capacity to follow up on these threats, so that people people do get charged. Um, you know, there's other other policy proposals that have been put forward, things like a foreign influence registry. Um, uh, so so. I mean, it would seem to me there there are limits, aren't there, to, to to the to the impact of this sending a message, but but maybe the problem has just been that the government hasn't actually been interested in sending a message to the government of of the PRC. They've more just wanted to send a message to placate critics and voters and then move on to the next thing. Oh, I think so. I mean, certainly every time there's some incident that you know politicians come up and condemn the Chinese, but I think. You know, the tacit message sent to China is we're not going to do anything about it. You know, you you can mm. carry on with your with your harassment, interference and espionage activities, and we won't be uh, we won't be making you accountable in any sort of way. But I mean, certainly a foreign influence transparency scheme act like Australia's or Foreign Agents Registry Act, you know, has had a positive impact. I mean, in Australia, just before the act came into effect, uh, you know, a, a number of senior Australians resigned from China connected boards. I mean, most notably the Australian minister, former minister of international trade, who resigned from an $880,000 a year private consultancy with a Chinese billionaire associated with the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which is the main United Front agency in China, who, you know, had also been involved in the, the lease on the port of Darwin to that billionaire for 99 years and and had been involved in 
a relationship between that port and the port of Virgil. Um, and I think in terms of the Australian-China free trade agreement, you know, my, when I was working in the diplomatic service, you know, there was a lot of pressure for Canada to basically cut and paste that agreement. But our people in the Department of Justice looked at the agreement and felt that it was so badly drafted and so much in favor of China that we aren't we weren't going to you know we weren't going to just take it. So there's no suggestion that Mr. Rob did anything illegal, um, you know, or vi violation of any laws, and he's certainly never been charged with anything. But the fact that he resigned just before the act coming into effect suggests that these kinds, this kind of legislation at least has a, a sort of symbolic effect on people who might consider receiving benefits from a foreign state um, um, on the on the, you know on the sly, and that if they're required to declare them, that 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 will make them decide that maybe that's not a good idea after all, even if enforcement and other aspects of this kind of legislation is quite problematic. But, yeah. you know, I think that we should have it. And the fact that that we had the impression the government was going to introduce that legislation um, last fall and then they didn't. And now the minister and the prime minister refer to the matter as complicated. And then we got some indication from another minister, a recent recent minister, that we would not be having any standalone um, foreign registry act you know, sends out a signal to China that that maybe um, providing benefits to to people who have influence over the Canadian policy process is is a good thing because, uh, you know, it seems that that uh, it's it's working and and um, we don't seem to be prepared to even make any kind of symbolic gesture towards saying that this is just wrong. You know, I, yeah. I mean, I would like to see a lot more transparency and money that everybody gets and including think tanks, particularly those think tanks who provide, you know, reports which seem to follow the Chinese government's agenda. I'd like to know if if there is a conflict there in terms of funding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're aware, for example, the China Institute at the University of Alberta received 10 years sustaining funding from a member of the Standing Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. But we still don't know how much and what the conditions were. Was it a deal whereby if the donor was unhappy at any stage, they could just pull a pull a pull a generous donation we don't know yeah that's uh that's fascinating um so uh, these are some of the the challenges and uh, with the canadian canadian experience um you were recently testifying in the united states before congress there have been a number of canadians including uh, michael chong uh, who have testified um i i'd be curious to understand more what the Americans are looking to learn from Canada's experience and um, what they want to understand um, about Canada. Is there a perception that foreign influence and interference in Canada could be a threat to the United States? Uh, or is it more just a question of understanding what the challenges are here so that they can kind of learn from it at a, in terms of American domestic policy? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I, you know, I don't think that Canada's, um, the state of Canada's relations with China is something which is writ large on the policy priorities of, of congressmen in Washington. I think their primary concern is, is Canada a reliable ally of the United States? And will we stand with the United States in terms of, um, of uh, standing up to China's threat to the rules-based international order? Or will we try and, um, you know, virtue signal our support and, um, and seek to benefit from 
pleasing the Chinese regime and thereby deriving some sort of privileged access to the Chinese market that's it's always being held out, although really our, our share of the Chinese market uh, has been declining. And, and, and frankly, you know, what we send to China is nearly entirely agricultural commodities and minerals for which there is a global market. So, you know, if we're not selling to China, we can soybeans or potash, you know, potash or or um, or um, canola seeds will, you know, we'll be able to sell them. So I, I think that that there is uh, concern about whether Canada is a true and and constant ally of the United States in its global um, uh, approach. Are we prepared to 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 allocate the kind of national resources in terms of our commitment to NATO? And um, and are we able to maintain the security of the information that the United States uh, shares with us? And would we be able to defend the North against uh, potential China and Russia threat, which I think is you know where the Americans really see our our value added and. The answer to all those questions, unfortunately, is not too positive. And I, I must say, I, I feel a high degree of unease of going to a foreign country and telling them things about Canada, which doesn't reflect favorably on us. But, um, uh, you know, if they ask me the questions, I have to give the answers. I'm hoping that perhaps our government will get the message from the Americans that unless we start to become much more proactive in uh, following the American lead in trying to meet the challenge of uh, China's malign um, global agenda, both in Canada and um, internationally, that that this will negatively impact on, on our overall relationship in terms of other things like uh, energy. In other words, they, mm-hmm. they won't be giving us the kind of concessions in terms of, um, you know, exemption from Buy America and so on, if we're not seen as a country which is a true and, and strong ally of our of our southern neighbor and um you know this is a it's a disturbing message um the, yeah. um it, it is it is generally the case that it seems to me that security looms much larger as an issue in american politics mm-hmm. and so it's not surprising that you would you would describe the fact that americans are looking at what's happening in canada with questions about security because americans are more likely to ask questions about security in general uh, whereas, I guess where we started this conversation was um, the the relative lower level of discussion that often surrounds security issues in Canada. Um, I recall when Obama spoke to Parliament. Um, there's a lot of a lot of play about the fact that that Trump has asked various allies to spend more uh, on on defense. But I, I remember when when Obama addressed Parliament and he said uh, he said basically that he'd like to see Canada spend more on its military. And, um, and everyone was so, well, maybe not everybody, but, but a lot of people were so enthralled by Obama that they stood up and clapped anyways, even though, even though (laughs) our friends across the way had no intention of actually doing it. So, um, so it's just interesting, this, this Canada U S dynamic, how, um, how, um, how, how, Americans are are looking at and thinking about security, but but, but, but what explains this difference between um, kind of national discussion around around these uh, these issues? You mean uh, why Canada? I think Canada. You know, we've never been invaded, unlike say Australia that had the Japanese in the war. And I guess we feel confident that the U.S. will will be there for us when we need it. But 
you know, we have uh, we have you know two oceans and one and one Arctic or three oceans around us, and and uh, and frankly, our our capacity to defend our country is pathetic. I mean, when a Chinese spy balloon started to float across Canada, you know, it was an American jet that shot it down. Apparently, we weren't able to get our plane up high enough to get it. So, you know, can we defend our country ourselves? And I think that. You know, our, our relations with the United States are becoming less and less a priority in Washington as other nations become more and more important. And the fact that, you know, we're, we're excluded from the Indo-Pacific economic framework, even though whatever 13 countries are part of it, or, you know, yeah. we're not part of the Quad, we're not part of the Australia-UK-US alliance. Yeah. Uh, it seems as if, you know, the Five Eyes is more and more turning into something that's more like three and Canada is is not seen as 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 important a country to the United States as Australia which is a less populous country far away I mean this is a, a pretty damning um, um, assessment of of how we've been playing this off and uh, you know it would it, it's an enormous task for us to try and catch up and and to actually be able to defend ourselves in a meaningful way I mean even in our indo-pacific strategy which unfortunately is seems to be more or less shredded due to what I would regard as mismanagement of our relations with um, India you know we are only promising to send one more frigate to help with uh, with the indo-pacific freedom of of navigation exercises over a long period you know the amount of resources that we're actually prepared to put into it is again similar to what you're saying essentially virtue signaling that oh yes we're we're fully engaged but when it comes down to it we're just not there with the follow-up and the and the substantive measures necessary and the and the um you know determination of political choices that we have to be putting more into defense which means uh, less into other things mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I would love to probe your comments on, on India at, at, at some point. Um, but just, just, just because of time, I, I did want to wrap up with, with, um, with one final question about, about China. And, um, we've had this, this great discussion about foreign interference and security. And, and, uh, I hope these are things people will, will take seriously to heart. Um, we're also having this discussion in the context where, um, we continue to see, see, horrifying human rights abuses uh in um you know th throughout throughout the prc uh, in particular the um uh, the the trial of jimmy lai uh house the house of commons did did uh, pass a call for uh for jimmy lai's release and and this is something that's been uh, dis discussed a, a fair bit in um in uh in the west and um, I've actually visited Jimmy Lai's home in Hong Kong, so I've got a I've got a particular personal interest in in this case. Um, I wonder if you could share kind of your thoughts on uh, what's happening with Jimmy Lai, developments in in terms of human rights inside of China, especially as someone I, I mean I know you you know you've lived in China, you've got a great love for Chinese culture and traditions, and and a real uh, kind of um, a level of understanding that informs your your analysis and and a level of um i should say 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 love and goodwill for the chinese people so um in terms of what's happening inside china itself uh, maybe that's a that's where we'll we'll conclude is to hear your thoughts on kind of those developments yes i mean i i do feel that uh the chinese communist regime is not representative of the values 
and um, cultural tradition of China, you know, contemporary values and cultural traditions of the people at large. It's it's a regime which has been imposed on them. And I do feel that that if, you know, there was a change in in uh, government in China, one could see a, a healthy democracy that would be a responsible stakeholder in global affairs emerge. I think that, you know, the Chinese people are yearning for for freedom to to be themselves and to enjoy the their freedom of expression, freedom of religion, uh, freedom of um, of uh, culture that uh, the current regime is is denying them. So I you know I am concerned primarily about people inside China, but in terms of Mr. Lai, obviously um, you know he has been subject to enormous injustice for being a courageous figure standing up for what the Chinese government had promised in the Sino-British Joint Declaration to maintain the freedoms of expression in Hong Kong and of his newspaper. Um, he's been subject to enormous discrimination up to now and is um, you know heroically um, continuing to maintain a, a positive uh, defiance against what's happening to him. Uh, the trial will go on for a long time. I think the Chinese hope that we will lose interest and and uh, you know the matter will will fade from public consciousness as I think the Chinese hope that the the arbitrary detention of Michael's favor and Michael Kovrick is done, you know, as if we can somehow, just put that behind us and go back yeah. to business as usual. Um, I, uh, I, I, I don't think that that should be the way that Canadians respond. But you know, you're right. I, I really hope for better days for China. I have so many uh, very close friends living in that country that I'm unable to freely communicate with now, and I hope that uh, that situation will change and I can return to China and visit my teachers and friends uh, once again. Hmm. Any, any final additional comments you want to make about any of the things we've covered, Charles? Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. You've been you've been generous with your time. Anything anything else you want to add? I think that you know. I think we have to to really hold the public inquiry to account. And I'm pleased that yeah. Mr. Chong will have um, full uh, access to the uh, the documents that the inquiry is uh, is privy to, and will have an opportunity to to ask questions of people in the inquiry. But, um, you know, this is a critical moment. If we fail to to bring the Chinese regime to account for what they have done um, in terms of interfering in our in our democratic institutions, then, uh, you know, it's just another uh, a brick in, in the wall for China's uh, ability to gradually um, subvert uh, nations around the world, including Canada, to, to the Chinese regime's uh, hostile agenda. We really have to understand the importance of freedom and democracy uh, to, to, to what Canada is, and we shouldn't allow any country to try and challenge that. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really important point, that the, um, the whole discussion around this inquiry, it's, it's either going to be the, the mark of a sea change in terms of Canadian response, or it will be a step on the road showing what... Um, what the CCP in this case, but foreign powers in general uh, can can get away with. Um, and so for those those listening and following, uh, there will be an interim report of the inquiry uh, supposed to be by the end of February. Uh, so so coming up fairly shortly and then a final report by the end of the year, um, portions of which will be will be made public and no doubt will be the subject of uh, 
of significant conversation. Charles, thank you again for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Great, great catching up with you. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family and to all, uh, all our listeners, uh, where, wherever you are. Um, and uh, we will be back with more episodes after Christmas uh, into, into January as we prepare for another new session of Parliament. Uh, and uh, thank you for, for uh, following Resuming Debate this year. Please uh, leave a review and uh, look forward to sharing more content with you in the new year. Thank you. All joy to your family for Christmas and all your listeners for 2024. Thank you.